laughed. If it wasn't visual clutter to me, because I just see it and I'm like, oh, tinsel, just fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Literary Cannonball, a podcast for anyone who wants a fun and feisty conversation about books. Literary Cannonball is inspired by the work of the Stella Count and the Vita survey that reveal the ongoing gender imbalance in the conversations we have about books. Literary Cannonball is striving to correct some of that imbalance by talking about books written by women from around the world. I'm Kirby Fenwick and I'm joined by Neve. I'm Neve Barney, student by day, writer ed by night and reader by nature. So and, good. and Fee! Fee Murphy, excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> How are we feeling today? New year, new us. Not yeah, really. yeah. I know, continued us. Yeah, that's better. We're <laughs> <laughs> slowly getting through this hot, hot heat. Oh, I'm really not liking it. Oh, I don't think it brings out the best in me at all. I'm <laughs> a wilted flower who needs to be looked after and yeah, I'm waiting for winter. <laughs> yeah, I'm a winter baby. I'm mm. definitely hanging for even autumn. Even autumn's good. Oh, autumn is magical. Oh, the leaves. But this bazillion percent humidity, 60 degree days, I'm just not on board with. I'm not on here. Yeah. It feels like I'm swimming through the humidity and I'm just not a graceful aquamarine sort of person. I'm very <laughs> much a land creature. Now we've covered the weather. So to our book for episode nine, originally published in 1989 in Mexico, Water for Chocolate is a classic of Mexican literature written by screenwriter and novelist Laura Escobar. Have I got that correct? I think so. Escobar. Yeah. Part cookbook, part steamy romance, part family drama and all magic realism, Water for Chocolate tells the story of Tita, saying that correctly, the youngest daughter of the all-female De La Garza, De La Garza? I'm terrible. I'm Family around the time of the Mexican Revolution in the early 20th century. The story, which spans some 22 years, is told through 12 chapters, each of which begins with a recipe. Water for Chocolate was a number one bestseller in Mexico for two years. The English translation was published in 1992 and a film was released in the same year, which we've all watched. Or watched some of. Yeah. <laughs> So that should add to the conversation. Neve, you suggested Water for Chocolate. Why did you bring it to the podcast? Okay, well, actually, Like Water for Chocolate came to me in an interesting way. Um, so I was reading um, a book called uh, Anna and the French Kiss, which is a really cute sort of YA book, which was actually, it's actually done a huge disservice by its title because it's actually quite nice. And anyway, the point of... Um, the sort of thrust of that book is that Anna goes to a boarding school in um, Paris and as she's just trying to navigate this whole new world, um, she's trying to navigate her classes, one of which is English, and she's looks at a book list and she's reading it and one of the books that she reads is Like Water for Chocolate and so she, she comments of like, oh my god, this is not like books I read for school, for school before. This is really sexy. It's really cool. Um, she uh, mentions the scene where Gertrudis like 
runs to the um, officer and, like, they have sex while, like, galloping away on the oh, horse. I'm just so interested <laughs> to discuss that scene because it's just... Yeah, so, like, going back to, like, me at, what, 14, I'm like, this book sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And so I was like, it sort of was in the back of my mind and then maybe, like, a, a, I can't actually remember. I mean, it could have been a few months. It could have been, like, a year later. I was walking in the library and the book, like the green cover just popped out at me. I'm like, oh, great. So I borrowed it and I loved it. And so I kind of wanted to recommend it because I feel like um, that like initial um, recommendation sort of led me to sort of come back to it later. And I feel like that's how we sort of, that sort of book network of, oh yeah, I heard about that book. And then it pops up in like a really interesting and way when you're not expecting it it's like a, a nice little magical realism in and of itself so it is too isn't it yeah i i, I do really like that mm. those sort of conversations that you have about books as well and then like you know different books pop up in those conversations yeah. or authors or what have you and then you add them to your list and it's just like yeah it's like a big spider web yeah, exactly and then books like and I'll, i'm a big believer of books coming into your life at the, the right, right time. time yeah oh so. that's really nice yeah, I've kind of given up on so many books lately. I'm just like, <laughs> ooh, what is the universe trying to tell me right now? <laughs> get outside, get some vitamin D maybe. <laughs> um, I too uh, read this book uh, many years ago. I think I read it when I was uh, 18 and it would have been the summer after high school or my first summer break at uni mm. and kind of similar experience that I hadn't heard of it before I was walking through the library it stood out mm. and took it home and devoured the book and absolutely loved it yeah lent it to my sister and she loved it and so for the past decade or so it's always been a book I've referred to when someone asks oh what's one of your favorite books I'm like like water for chocolate it's amazing it's a fantastic book so I was quite excited to read it again yeah I don't think it's a favourite book anymore. Oh, no. no! I know. I think I've changed as a person. Um, I am not a fan of Pedro, who is a leading male character who causes a lot of heartache and drama, and I think mm. he's an absolute fuckwit. <laughs> Thank you. Just, I agree. I could oh, not agree more. He's oh, the most yeah. selfish, inhumane individual, yeah. and I don't know... What I was thinking when I was reading it, I was kind of like swept away by like, ooh, tortured romance. Ooh, this is so saucy. It is quite saucy. Oh, yeah, mm. But he's a fucking dick. He's yeah. fucking terrible. He is. Yeah, I think actually it's interesting both of us read it and loved it when we were sort of younger and possibly a bit more romantic and not as schooled in the ways of like feminism and like you know, healthy relationships. Mm. Um, because there's so much in this book to love, but, oh, my God, Pedro is a dickhead, and I yeah. cannot get behind him And he's all. abusive as mm. well. Absolutely. Like, in his marriage, he absolutely ignores his wife, mm-hmm. um, is cold and inhumane to her, and feels like he's superior in many respects, I think. Yeah, mm. and then with uh, the love of his life, Tita, who he can't be with because she's not allowed to 
get married mm-hmm. um, kind of strings her along for years and years and years. And then, yeah. like, you know, does everything he can to sabotage her, like, possibility at long-term happiness with the doctor. I know. Mm. Yeah. And I, I had not read this book before. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like a reverse of the I Capture the Castle situation <laughs> with you, Nick. I yes. had not read this before. Mm. And... Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it such an easy read in a lot of respects and it was very, um, you kind of sunk into that world mm. and it was, um, yeah, it was an easy read. Um, and I did really enjoy it because I really liked Tita and I really liked Gertrudis when she comes back oh, and she's like this, uh, this like member of the Revolutionary Army or something and she's like this badass. But yeah, I, mm. I really, really disliked Pedro and then watching the film... I disliked him even more. <laughs> like his character in the film, I think, is much, much worse, comes across much, much worse um, than what he does in the book, for sure. I, granted, I haven't finished the film, but from what I, I have like half an hour to go of it, I found Pedro much more palatable in that because he just popped up occasionally. He's yeah. an attractive man who stands there quietly, looking brooding. Whereas in the book, the words around his actions and you get more of Tita's in in a monologue mm. and just the anguish she's feeling. And I'm quite sure when they have sex for the first time, when I read that, I was like, that sounds a bit forced. Mm-hmm. It was very, like, when I read that section, I was like, it didn't seem like a very consensual seen at all and I was quite shocked I was like what just happened yeah and just the amount of silence that um he inflicts upon her where she has to keep so many secrets to protect him mm-hmm. and his livelihood and she's mm. always putting herself second which I just he's not a nice character I found it quite yeah. troubling I found it really interesting that you thought didn't yeah I don't know I think maybe in the movie it's um so much of his so much of that behavior is kind of was kind of i felt was condensed in a way and it was just and maybe this is also because i watched the film last night so it's much more like (laughs) fresh in my mind but um yeah in both both film and book i i just didn't like him he's he's not a good character well and the thing is i could maybe get behind their relationship but like we're not shown it because we the book starts with Pedro wanting to marry Tita and we're not shown any of the courtship and so I feel like that would have made me a little bit more sympathetic at least to the relationship and why there was so that's a really good point um and that's why I think the film was a little bit better because we got like some flashbacks as you were able to see it as a viewer I did Mm. find it interesting though that his first kind of moment where he talks to her because it's uh a well-off family who live on a ranch and they do quite a lot of entertaining so that's how Pedro is introduced to the family he comes along to dinners and things like Mm. that and there's quite a period of time where they haven't spoken to one another Mm. the first conversation he has with her is like I love you and (laughs) what do you think of that and she's like can't doesn't say anything and he is pretty much like you either know or you don't love Mm. is a feeling and demands her to answer Isn't him she like immediately. 15? Yeah, she's yeah. quite young and then kind of manipulates her almost into providing an answer 
immediately. Like, she's no time to think Mm -hmm. whether she does love him or not. Like, she has to answer him. And that power dynamic where he's in full control just really pissed me off. Even when um, the mother, who's Tita's mother, who's a dominating character for a long Mm. period of time, who sits out, um, sets out kind of specific structure and rules of Tita can't get married because she's the youngest daughter. And in that position, as part of the family history, it's her responsibility to look after the mother. So she can never get married because she has to be available for every whim. And even when um, later on in the story, when Tita's free of that, she's still not free at all because that power dynamic is Pedro's in control. And there's just so much dominating of Tita Mm. the whole time that I was just so annoyed. I know you sort of had, yeah, Tita sort of throw off um, her mother's control finally. Um, But I think her choice to stay on the ranch was more motivated by um, Esperanza and like stopping that and like being there for her and sort of feeling like the role of the grandmother almost. For her, like how she was... Because she wanted to prevent what had yeah. happened to her happening to her niece. So, yeah, yeah, sort of like inserting her, like taking her place in that sort of matriarchal lineage. Mm. Um, but I will, yeah, agree that like, I, I feel like the whole thing of like, oh, should I choose John or Pedro wasn't explored. Like, because, I mean, she's like, oh, what should I do? And then like the next thing is December. Let's like fast forward a few decades talk a little bit about that because I felt lost a little bit sometimes when I was when I was reading because I knew that it happened across the span of 22 years and I'm like okay cool and then it's told like you know January February March is every chapter and there's a recipe and the the food stuff is great and I'm sure we'll talk about that but I felt a a little bit at times that it wasn't always clear where we were it felt like yeah it just it didn't always it wasn't always clear to me when I was reading where we were in time like what was going on like how old Mm. are we supposed to be here how much time has passed since the last chapter like that really yeah that was really I really struggled with that yeah I mean I think the only time with that I really struggled was probably the the chapter break between like the end of November and December. But the thing is, I didn't mind as much because um, the whole thing is meant to be told by like um, Tita's sort of descendant. Grand niece. Yeah, grand yeah, niece. Um, and so I sort of picked up like a sort of like an oral storytelling vibe mm. of like stories woven within stories and how, you know, if you're telling a family story, you're not maybe probably telling it from beginning to end. It's like... You're telling it and then, oh, then there's this relative who did this and then it sort of goes back and forth because... It does follow a little bit of a yeah, it chronological does. sort yeah. of thing, but it just, there's big jumps. Yeah, and exactly, I think and dips in and out. The, mm. this, the, visually, I, I agree with Kirby, I had the same experience where it's flagged up as a certain month and then you're having to read three pages in to realise that it's a decade later. Mm. It's like... Oh, okay. I mean, you could have mentioned that maybe subtly in sentence one or two of the section just to kind of ground it a little bit because at points I was scavenging for clues to figure out 
where in time we were because those things are mm. quite important because suddenly um, there are periods of time where not a lot changes and there's other periods of time where a tremendous amount of activity happens mm. and it's like, I don't know how old anyone is. I'm yeah, very that's confused. I, yeah, I, that's what I struggled with, mm. you know, because I knew that it was 22 years and I'm reading going, how many, I mean, how many years have passed? Like, are we at like year 10 now? Like I was sort of just guessing a lot of times. And mm. you, maybe you don't necessarily need that, but it's kind of helpful as a reader to feel, you know, to be, to have that grounding, as you said, theme in what's happening. Mm. Can we talk about the mum? Oh yeah, the mum. What, what do we feel about the mother? I felt like the film did a better job than the book with the mother. <clears throat> So the mother is quite a domineering character. Mm. She imposes a lot of law and order within her house. Um, and she has a, a lot of reason behind her actions from her own backstory yeah. and what's happened to her. In the book, you discover those reasons extremely late in the piece, uh, whereas there's subtle hints and visual cues in the film that happened a little bit earlier mm. on that kind mm. of soften the blow and explain a lot of things yeah as kind of the story unfolds so you have the information there whereas i felt a lot of rage towards the mother because i had forgotten her backstory mm. i just thought what a woman she yeah. is cruel and yeah. she is cruel yeah. but she's also experienced a lot of life and a lot of grief and yeah she's yeah i feel quite conflicted about her mm. because on as you say Fee, on one hand it's like why are you such a horrible human being as your daughter and daughters you know like even mm. the way she's just like she just like dismisses gertrude and just like that's it kind of thing um but then yeah you, you kind of got the sense and you do learn a little bit of that later on but definitely that there's there's more depth here there's something else going on there's mm. a lot of the a lot of things about her and her history and her life that we're just not privy to that inform who she is as a person yeah yeah i mean i suppose this book could in a way sort of be a study of like intergenerational trauma and like mm. how like you know womanhood has been so repressed and i think that's that whole um dynamic between sort of repression and like acting out how you really feel is sort of like the main tension in the book and I feel like that's why I don't mind the ending in terms of like Tita because sort of Tita sort of brings that healing to the um to the family by sort of taking up her place in like yeah in the family and sort of allowing the um allowing Esperanza to marry as she wishes you know it's good to have those we need more stories of, of, of women and their relationships mm. with each other, mothers and daughters and sisters. But you also want there to be complexity there and you yeah. want to have unlikable mothers and unlikable daughters and just mm. unlikable women because that's the reality. Mm. And so I think it's important to have characters like the mother that are really complex and in many respects really unlikable and she is like a real, um, you know, like there's, you know, you compare her to Tita and it's like, what a wonderful woman she is in so many respects. So it's mm. like a, a really good contrast in many ways. 
Yeah. And maybe like Tita standing up to her mother is that kind of, you know, like women pushing back against the oppression that we experience. Yeah, and also the oppression not just from men, but how women police other women. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, from both her mother and um, the other sister, Rosera, Rosara? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of that whole, yeah, that dynamic of like um, Rosera being like, you can't shame me, uh, and how with um, Pedro, and how the concern she was with appearances as opposed to um, Tita, who had sort of lived her life so much in service of her mother that when she was finally broke free of that she was she didn't she was so lost and so she had to like completely try and regain herself and her own sense of who she was and so she's just like yeah fuck it i'm just gonna go for what i want mm. now so what do we think of the food <laughs> it is definitely my memories of the book are predominantly the food like mm. i had forgotten the romance and i've forgotten pedro completely as a character and my main memories were um the rose petals and the tears so mm. anytime tita cooks um if she's in a heightened state of emotion be that passion or heartache or longing or jealousy or rage that's imbued in whatever dish that she's cooking mm. and it's magical realism because the people who eat the food experience those emotions yeah um many of which were quite amusing i have to say amusing. <laughs> and i found uh that definitely stood up and it's absolutely mm. gorgeous the descriptions of even onions are yeah. just yeah. stunning and chilly so it's like all the produce and um putting it together to create a meal but it shows so much about tita where she can't she has no one to turn to to talk about her emotions mm. she puts a lot of it into her food and it is a bit of her come up comeuppance quite a, often where she um her sister who marries the love of her life, so Tita can't be with Pedro, but her sister marries Pedro. Um, that causes Tita a lot of anguish. And she um, cooks her a meal at one point and Tita is feeling a lot of anguish and jealousy and rage towards her sister as she's cooking. And then her sister experiences horrible indigestion mm. for the rest of her life. And yeah. I just thought, wow, that's... There's so many wonderful ideas related to the food and mm. such mm. good storytelling. The writing yeah. around the food is so well done. Oh, definitely. It, it just, I think that was some of my favourite parts of the entire book was reading about the recipes and, yeah, just, you know, that cooking process was just, it was really, really lovely. Those mm, passages definitely. sing. They mm. are so mm. lyrical. It makes the other um, parts of the book seem quite spare um and lacking if anything um i found that when i was reading this i was like oh it's a bit thin in sections like it kind of jumps forward yeah skips out a whole bunch of stuff not a lot of characterization in a few bits but when it comes to the food the detail is always relevant and it's beautiful descriptions mm. and it's really evocative that those passages really are just yeah. delicious to read, let alone the actual content sounds amazing, but mm -hmm. everything else seems a bit kind of empty-handed. I don't know. I don't know if I... I think there is 
I because with the food, I yeah, I definitely enjoyed that. But I think more for me, I really enjoyed the stories at like within the stories. So like the um the little asides about um the uh, Gertrude's general or how like um the mother you know stands up to the revolutionary army which doesn't happen in the film i thought that was oh, a really that was so irritating important part of the yes. book and i thought that really told you a lot about her as a woman mm. and it just does as a happen human in the being film. but she doesn't no. in the in the book she like wins she wins that battle and mm. you know they take a little bit but they don't get very much and she's very much in control of that situation but in the book in the film sorry she's not like yeah. they're like you know, and I, I think feel it's that after... was pretty true to the book, to be honest. No, no there's like a whole part, and I really like enjoyed. I, they that didn't part go into book. detail of the pig and stuff like that, but no, it, to yeah, me, no, when no, I watched that scene, I was like, it's a condensed version of what happens in the book, but I thought it was pretty accurate. And no, then but I she gets that... rid of them in the in the yeah. book. She like you know she hides all the stuff and then like basically makes them back off. Yeah, like obviously the um the rape does happens in both, mm. and but yeah no in the the book, she really that's defends a separate section though the rape is a different incident to the house I, one I the two it was different same. incidents no the two different times maybe I've just conflated it in my yeah mind. I thought it was because the, the house one time, is when yeah. all the revolutionaries are about to invade the house and the mother stands off and she fires the gun they can't come into the house they can go into the barns and the yeah. and the outer buildings but they cannot mm. step into the house and, and they she respects yeah, that yeah. yeah in both the book and the film oh i don't remember seeing that in the film i think i watched that scene pretty closely because i was concerned about all the animals involved in the filming because they drag like a, a sheep along and i was like that's a real sheep you're dragging a real sheep that poor she's being injured. Yeah, no, in the film, I remember, because she fires the gun and then they take the gun away from her. Yeah, that's the scene I remember. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So... I'm really bad at watching films. <laughs> but in any case, I really liked it because it has a lot of echoes in um, other things I've read, in history and other things I've read. Revolution is very much... I mean, it's there, but it's not, it's not particularly overt, is it? Like, it pops up a little bit in, like, those instances and with, mm. you know, Gertrudis and what have you, but um, it's kind of simmers in the background, but it's it's not particularly overt in the story. No. I think they're sort of for some plot points, um, maybe, and also sort of presenting one idea of um, masculinity that sort of Gertrudis then subverts. Mm, I think she might be mm. my favourite character. Yeah, she was really bad. Although I have to say that idea of, like, you know, she's a virgin and she gets, like, picked up by this guy because um, she's running through the fields naked after. Was that after eating the rose petals? Yeah. And the quails? Yeah. yeah which, like, woo. Um, you know, and in the book they're effectively having sex on the horse. Mm. I'm like... Oh my god! Like I just <laughs> that must be the magic realism part. I just found that whole scene like somewhat um, ridiculous, but I guess it you know it's magic realism. That's kind of what you want. I, yeah. Just when you read it in the book, I'm like, wow, that's really what a scene. Mm. Didn't expect them to carry that out in the film, and they did. Oh yeah, they, they went for it. 
<laughs> well, I suppose, like, it's such an iconic scene within the book. Like, how yeah. could they not do it? I think it's it's better to read, maybe, than to actually watch in a film. Yeah, because it goes on for quite a it while. It does go on for a while in the film. <laughs> quite very funny very funny but i think she was one of i think she's one of my favorite characters i think because she subverts that idea and mm. and sort of um you know takes that authority and takes that power in many respects you know and she comes back to the house and she's very very like happy with herself and in herself and you know is not looking for anyone's approval or or anything like that and i just found that really yeah i really liked that mm. I, I quite liked, given the era that it was written in as well, that she is, because she eats the rose petals, she's feeling an incredible amount of lust that's burning inside her, that she then gets a job in a brothel to try and work her way through that lust. And it's um, she's quite practical about it. She sleeps with, it makes it seem like hundreds of men. And there's no slut shaming around that at all. No. Mm. In terms of her, like, sisters are fine with it. Her mum kind of has already... Is she dead at that point? Or I think by the she's time dead by the time comes back, she's yeah, dead. she is, yeah. But there's no, like, around that section, there wasn't any shaming of her. And even mm. her husband, like, the, the man that she ends up marrying is, like... I mean, they're obviously still enamoured with each other, even yeah, you know, right it, towards the end, which yeah. is really quite sweet. That's a... Yeah, that's a really interesting... Sort of mm. side part and I found it quite funny that they kept putting like even in that relationship he couldn't keep up with her and it yeah. was just I thought she's such a great that's character that's actually my favourite <laughs> yeah I really yeah, liked her um, so yeah. would you guys recommend the book? I think I would yeah. I think I would probably add um, would I add a little bit of a you know heads up about how horrid Pedro is I don't know maybe I would maybe I wouldn't but yeah I think I would yeah I think yeah I really liked this book um and I would and I would recommend it I just loved how like there's so much like how like just the framing of it in terms of as you're reading it you're reading the recipes and therefore like it's as though you're sort of participating in like Tita's legacy and mm. you know continuing that whole um knowledge yeah continuing that knowledge and keeping her like the spirit alive like i like when sort of books involve you in that way it did kind of feel a little bit like um the grand nieces you know you're just sitting around a kitchen table obviously cooking and she's telling you these stories that kind yeah. of you did i did kind of get a bit of a sense of that which was is nice as a reader to feel that yeah and definitely and i feel like this is a very like feminine book and not apologetic about it like no. even the how the setup in terms of january and february is referencing um like periodicals that are really that were really popular with um mexican women at the time and like throughout history so i feel like there's so much of this book i mean obviously the romance i mean pedro is a dickhead it's problematic it's problematic let's just say but there's so much in this book to love i feel like yeah yeah it's a thumbs up what about me. you Faith? Um, to be honest, I'm a little bit sad that I've reread it because Isn't that such a shame. It was like a really nice, like I was excited to reread it, yeah. but mm. I think the thin writing really kind of irked me because it's like my memories of it are just so rich and evocative. Mm. And I definitely the strongest memories over like the last decade have been like 
her relationship with food and the kitchen and things like that. So I'm really pleased that stands up. But mm. um, yeah, I think if, because um, my sister hasn't reread it and it's still one of her favorite books, I would caution her to, to reread it, yeah. To mm. maybe not reread mm. it and keep those memories strong. <laughs> Um, it's yeah. always the risk that you take when you have a favorite book from childhood, um, or even you know five or ten years ten years ago. Mm. It's such a risk. It <laughs> really is such a reread punch. Oh my oh, goodness! Yeah. yeah. Um, that said, yeah, why not? People should read it. Like, it's a really good discussion book. Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't chat about it that much when I had read it the first time. Um, I've definitely gotten a lot out of it reading this and talking to you guys because I mean there it is great for showing complexity of female characters and different mm, yeah. scenarios and how females interact with one another and society and things like that so I think a lot of um, the strength of it of Pedro being such a dickhead is quite reflective of the systems and structures that were in place at the time so it's yeah. probably good that I hate him so much because mm those systems and structures are problematic. Yeah. Um, but it's more the kind of the technical aspects of it that really kind of, I'm like, oh, it's not grounded in different time periods. Like when you go from section to section, there are thin bits of writing that are like lackluster. And I think she, um, it makes sense that she writes for the screen because I, I was think going there's a to lot of say space. that I only mm. found out like in the last few days that she was a screenwriter and that's what made me think ah okay did she write this book for the screen like was that in her mind when she was writing this book was yeah. this could be a film mm. Mm. oh yeah though we should say just to like it was tra uh, was translated by um, Carol Christensen Christensen and Thomas Christensen, well, at least my copy was. So whose names don't appear on the cover, which is really yeah, interesting, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because like translations now, the translator's name tends to appear on the cover with the writer. Yeah, I think maybe Do, don't they? Or am I imagining that? Oh no, um, it's not always one general rule. If it's yeah. say someone like uh, Elena Ferrante's translator Anna Goldsmith, uh, Goldstein or Goldsmith? I think Goldstein. Goldstein. Um, she generally, because she's got such stature in translating, she generally her name appears on things. But yeah, yeah. yeah now I it's... say that, I think maybe I'm just mentally cataloging my my book my bookshelves, going, yeah, no, that's a translation that doesn't have the translator's name on it. Yeah, I think it, it's yeah, it depends on yeah, how like famous the author is, how famous like the translators are. I feel like it's a conversation yeah. that we have more mm. often now, just as a general rule. Is about the concept of translation and, and mm. how that all works. I just feel like that's perhaps a conversation that is happening more and more often now than yeah. perhaps it would have been in the early nineties. Yeah, definitely. Though, yeah, I'm I haven't actually read much about like the translation, like uh, sort of like water for chocolate in Spanish versus English. So I don't know how much of the writing it has been, but I assume like a lot of like the pacing and the um, uh, and those sort of the richness of the language probably would translate over. You'd hope so. Yeah. So three thumb three can't even speak. Three thumbs up for like water for chocolate. Well Or well, two and a half. Yeah. Yeah, two and a half. Let's go with that. <laughs> nice.
Okay, to our recommendations for this month, what have we been reading and watching and listening to that we want to share? Who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> no one? What about you go first? Yeah, Barbie? okay, okay, I'll go first. Um, so I only have sort of one, one proper thing to recommend. Um, Angela Carter's Wise Children is a book that I uh, finished reading maybe like a week ago. Um, and it's so good. It's Aww. so good. I'm such a fan of Angela Carter. I, I really love her stuff. But um, this one is so great. It's, it's the story of the Chance Sisters. Um, who were dancers and performers in like the early part of the 20th century in, in the UK. And they do a bit of work in America as well. And their relationship with uh, their father, who is um, this very wealthy and, and respected Shakespearean actor in the UK, um, who doesn't acknowledge them as being his. And yeah, and he's he's extended family. He's been married three times and has three lots of children. He has a brother who acts as like a surrogate father for the Chance sisters. And it's a very complex and convoluted kind of family tree. There's actually a description in the back of all the characters and who how they're sort of related, which is useful to refer to when you get a bit stuck. But what I loved about this book was it starts with um, the Chance sisters receiving an invitation to their father's 100th birthday party. Mm. I think they're about 75. They share a birthday with their father, which is really cool. Um, so it's their birthday as well. So it starts with them receiving this invitation. And then the entire book, right up until like the last couple of pages, is basically giving you the entire backstory to them and the family and like, all the complex relationships and, and things that happened, which on the surface sounds like it would be super dull, mm. but it's not. It is so great. And it's just, I mean, the voice of uh, Dora, I'm like totally blanking, but I'm pretty sure it's Dora, who narrates Dora and Nora, the twins. Oh. Um, her voice is so great. Like, she's such a great narrator. She's funny and she's a bit like um like sarcastic and a bit like acidic at times and it's yeah like the the you know that sort of like giving an entire book of backstory basically sounds super dull but it's really really not it's really great it's yeah it's really wonderful so I, I really can't recommend that one enough oh wow breaking all the rules yeah absolutely but it's done well I mean look you can break the rules if you do it well Exactly. And Angela Carter does it well. Yeah, you can do it if you're Angela Carter. You can do anything if you're Angela Carter. <laughs> I think that's just a basic rule for life. Um, the other thing I wanted to give a little bit of a recommend shout out to is a project that I've been working on for the last few months. Um, it's an audio documentary about the very first AFLW game, which was played uh, in February last year, nearly a year to the day. Um, that will be released at the end of January. Um, super exciting project that I've been working on. You can check it out at uh, firstfridayinfebruary.com. There's a trailer up there. And so, I don't know, is it silly to recommend your own things in recommendations? Not at no. all. If you didn't recommend it, I would because I listened to that trailer when I was on a tram and I almost slid off my seat. I was so excited. <laughs> um, and the trailer only goes for a few minutes, but the amount of emotion in it, um, mm. I'm not 
a big footy person by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt chills just listening to the women describe what football means to them and what the night means to them. And I'm so pumped to hear the whole doco because it's something special. I should say, I will not apologise for any crying. I will not apologise for tears that will happen as a result of this documentary because I can guarantee that there will be some tears in there, absolutely. I was very much so for footy fans, but I think even for non-footy fans that can, like you, Fee, can appreciate the significance of that night. So I've said it before and I stand by it that I will not apologise for any tears <laughs> that I force on people. Um, okay, so that's me. Uh, who's next? Uh, I'll go next. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, Kirby, I only have one recommendation for this month because I've been a little bit slack. Um, so my recommendation is called The Cruel Prince. It's by Holly Black, who is one of my favourite, favourite Wyatt authors. Um, and basically you can read any of her books and they're fabulous uh, you might know her because she um i think co i think yeah she wrote uh the spiderwick chronicles um so the cool prince was the dude the main character who and the opening of the novel is this um fairy sort of uh duke general guy comes into her house uh and she discovers that her mother um, was married to him and the eldest sister actually isn't biologically related to their father but to this guy. He's really angry and so then proceeds to kill both the parents and then take all the children to the fairy-like land. Okay. So I'm just going to like just let you know this, this starts hot and keep and keeps on running oh my goodness <laughs> um it's really oh it's just like holly black is so great with fantasy and making it feel really grounded um there's like a lot of like political machinations in this book this stuff as with any sort of actually a good sort of like fairy book is actually like a really good spy book because um you can't really trust even though fairies in this world can't lie it means that they're really manipulative and so you can't really trust anyone and so it comes it goes to a, it as the book progresses it just picks up steam as like um events unfold and you things that you thought were true aren't and yeah basically i just i think i tweeted about this like i was reading this and there were just parts i was just like holy shit holy shit holy shit because i was just it was so intense that sounds book. amazing. Yeah. So. Is it the is the fairy thing? Do you think that might be informed a little bit by like Irish Irish mythology? Yeah, definitely. Maybe? Definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's all like um, Holly Black sort of interpretations is very much like comes from those sort of like Celtic myths. Okay, yeah. now I definitely have to read it. Mm. Nice one. Yeah. What do you got, Fee? I can see there's a serious list happening there. I'm, this is like one of my favourite parts of the month, I swear to God. I love listening to your recommendations. I have had a very different kind of month to Kirby in that you've been You like, haven't been making an audio documentary? I haven't been under the pump, no. I, I came to a grounding halt um, at the end of December, having finished off a lot of writing projects and deadlines and things like that. And... 2017 was an amazing writing year where I had a lot of stuff going on. And so by the time Christmas came, I 
fell into a puddle <laughs> and in this puddle I wallowed around and I read quite a bit. Um, this is only a short list of things that I managed to read. I have to say I also had long periods of time traveling uh, during the two-week break that I had of like planes and trains and automobiles and kind of getting around to see people. So it was quite useful for getting things done and read. Um, but that said, I, before I kind of do any of the recommendations, I'm finally getting my act together and I will be doing a recommendations kind of tiny letter thing. Because um, I do have a ridiculous list, but it, mainly because I forget what I read because I kind of steam through things and I forget. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll be doing that and you can find that from my website, which is uh, themurphywriter.com and... I'll just be doing little notes every two or three weeks of stuff that I've read and listened to. Excellent. Can't wait. Sign me up. <laughs> um, so the first thing that I read was recommended by a friend. And coincidentally, two days later, somebody gave me the book for free because they had just finished reading it and they also loved it. So this oh, book just kind of... Excellent bit of serendipity right there. It was there. so serendipitous because that I was recommended it in Sydney and some stranger that I'd only just met gave it to me in Tamworth. So it was wow. many miles apart. And it's called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Callahan. Uh, it was released in 2012 and it went straight to the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it's a nonfiction book um, about... Um, a woman who went mad for a month and it, she's a journalist who works for the post um, when the story starts um, her real story um, and she's having a lot of trouble kind of committing to things and seeing things through and meeting deadlines and she's in her early 20s and a lot of people are like oh it's your first you know big professional job there's a lot of stress and pressure but she's just kind of blanking on things and getting really confused and um, being quite erratic. I think quite that escalates quite quickly and she um, has all these outbursts and things like that. And people are like, wow, she's having a breakdown. And it gets to the point where she becomes drastically unwell and she gets admitted to, um, it's, cause she has a couple of seizures, but they don't know if they should put her in a psychiatric unit or in the seizure unit, and they make the decision to put her into the seizure, seizure unit to monitor her and figure out what's happening. And this story kind of follows what is going on with her, but she investigates her own story. So you know that she recovers from whatever this is, but she has lost an entire year of memories um, because she just absolutely, her brain is on fire and um, her brain is kind of melting down literally from this disorder she has. And she is on the brink of death, but they pull her back and a doctor saves her through all these kind of coincidences and things like that. And it's an incredible wow. piece of journalism because she interviews hundreds of people who are involved in her life, people who thought she was just having a, a breakdown from stress uh, she interviews all the medical staff and things like that and pieces together her own story and she has this extremely rare condition and I don't want to spoil too much because it's a gripping read of um, what is biological illness, what is caused by certain factors um, versus 
what's seen as a woman who's young and stressed and all those kind of social pressures and the things like that. The kind of like minimising of mm. women's experiences and women's pain is... thousand yeah. percent, mm. yeah. That's going on my must-read list. It's just, oh, it's fascinating. Um, and my next reco is by someone who I've recommended before and I think she's one of my favourite, favourite writers now, um... Jhumpa Lahiri. Nice. Um, and this is her debut collection of short stories, which was Ooh. released in 1999, and it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, so just a, you yeah. know, just a cash collection. Fresh off the bat, whatever. <laughs> um, it's called The Interpreter of Maladies, and this book is so evocative. Um, I picked it up thinking, oh, I'll just read one because I was juggling a few other books at the time and I thought, oh, I'll just dip in and out. I was in this book and immersed in it that I was on a flight from Melbourne to Sydney and I was shocked that we landed in Sydney because I thought we were going to be landing in Delhi. Like I was so in this book and all wow. the characters that I was just like, wait, what? We're in New South Wales? I, I just completely was swept away by the book and the characters um each story is um, a moment in time often she explores themes of kind of uh characters who are disempowered by various means whether they're too young to be um, responsible for themselves um or they're in a relationship where they don't have enough money to be completely responsible so it's kind of different themes around power um interpersonal relationships and they're quite small units of time but they're so they kind of really stretch and there's space and depth to each story that each sentence is not loaded and overwritten but just necessary there isn't a wasted word in any story and for a collection of short stories with very different characters um, it holds together really nicely as a collection, but each story is beautiful and unique by itself. Um, she's such a good writer. I'm so determined to read like oh. as much as I can of her this year. She's so high up mm. on my list of oh, readers to read this she's year. She's stunning. Writers to read. Writers to read. Uh, and the fact that the first book that I read of hers was the book that she wrote in Italian and mm. had translated, and I yeah. absolutely adore that. Mm. So to read her in a language of English, which um, she grew up speaking English, she is a master of the written word. It's skilled. So, mm. so skilled. And just oh, fascinating. What a woman. Um, and... The last one that I'm going to recommend is a podcast because I've been listening to quite a few podcasts um, of late. And this one is called Not By Accident and it's by an Australian woman called Sophie Harper. I've seen this somewhere the other day. Oh, it's fantastic. It is so, so good. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that people are talking about it because it's the, the concept alone is worth talking about, but the production of this is stunning. Um, Sophie is living in Denmark and this is kind of under the category of personal journals, um, that kind of section of podcasting, um, where it follows her life. Mm -hmm. She's 38 years old, living in Denmark and makes the decision that she will be a mother and it's not going to be by accident. She decides she'll be a single mother and, um, gets artificially inseminated. 
and then starts the process of becoming a mother. And she's a documentary filmmaker, so she records the entire process leading up to the insemination, the decision-making around it, all the Skype calls with her family in Australia and friends around the world, her interactions with work and the Danish authorities. And she records five years of her life. Uh, there's 25 episodes at the moment, so it's kind of a flash back and forward. Mm. Um, each episode is about 25 minutes to half an hour long. They are so stunningly stitched together of different um, parts of audio of her daughter, Astrid, is kind of in and out. So you know she has a daughter, but the mm. amount of tension and drama that you feel as she's going through the process of um, becoming pregnant. Um, she goes into a lot of detail of her finances, which is really interesting of the social welfare system in Europe versus Australia, what it means to be a woman um, who doesn't, she has a bit of a safety note with friends and family, but she's going alone in a lot of sections of her life. And because um, she knows a lot of people in the industry, she has a lot of the music scored for the audio as well. Wow, nice. It is so delightful and textured. Like this, it sounds amazing. Like they're, there isn't white space in it. Um, not that it's cluttered or anything, but it's just so lovely to listen to. And she does a lot of these beautiful monologues where she kind of really grounds you in a moment of time of her feelings and where she's at and then provides clips of that. Um, yeah. It's... I'm so, I, I definitely seen that somewhere on the internet in the last couple of days. And I thought, that sounds so fascinating, that entire concept. I was just mm. like, that is going on the must-listen list at some point. Yeah. I'm so invested in her life right now. It's just, <laughs> I haven't finished all the episodes, but it's just, I raced through about 10 quite quickly and then I thought, no, I'm not going to have any left. I need to start <laughs> like kind of listening to little bits and pieces. Yeah. yeah. And there's artwork for every single episode as well. If you go to the website... Uh, the Not By Accident podcast website, um, each episode has a beautiful image to go with it. Um, and it's just stunning and uplifting and um, stressful great. at times because her life is stressful at times. And I'm yeah. like, oh, my God, how are you going to do it? Oh, so, yeah, highly recommend. So putting all of your Rex and Neve's Rex for this month on my list. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Thank you for listening to Literary Cannonball. We hope you'll tune in again next month when we'll be talking about This One Summer, which is a graphic novel, our first graphic novel, from Mariko Tamaki and Gillian Tamaki, uh, who are Canadian... Cousins. Cousins? Yes. Okay, I great. Just Googled. Excellent. Super excited for that one, A, because it's a graphic novel and big fan of graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And our first Canadian... Yeah. Canadian writer, creator, illustrator, producer. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And in the meantime, if you want to continue the conversation or if you just want to be digital friends, you can follow us on Twitter at Lynn Cannonball, on Instagram at Literary Cannonball, or find us on Facebook. And if you have something to tell us that's a little more than 140 characters, send us an email. We love emails. We want to get more of them. Yes, please. <laughs> at literarycannibal at gmail.com. 
and make sure you check out our website at literarycannonball.com. You'll find a full wrap of the show notes, including a list of and links to our recommendations. So it makes your life a little bit easier. You just can click away and that's literarycannonball.com. Excellent. Yeah. Happy reading, everyone. Yeah. And happy new year. Yeah. And happier, happier. <laughs> Audio <laughs> documentary <laughs> I'm very excited for that. Me too. Excellent. Okay. Bye. Bye. Is that kid shut up? Anyway, you know, it adds to the, um, what were you saying about the doco? The texture adds to the texture of the podcast when we have a kid screaming in the background, I think. I think the birds alone is enough texture. Yeah, the birds are good. <laughs>